Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm stirring up the uh, pellets of the chicle. I'm stirring them up to melt them uniformly in the pot. And you can see how sticky that is. I'm in Austin, Texas, in the kitchen of a suburban bungalow to hang out with a small batch artisanal food producer. I'm Edward Bradfield with Real Good Gum. You're a gum maker. You're big gum. Yes, I'm big. No, I'm small gum. I'm small handcrafted gum. Yeah, we're talking about chewing gum. Edward makes his gum from chicle, or chicle, as it's more commonly pronounced. Chicle is this wild foraged ingredient. This is actually a natural latex from a tree that grows in the rainforest in Central America. If you want to feel it, it's... You know, you can even chew it. The chicle comes in little nubbly bits. They're beige-colored. He keeps it in a container on his kitchen counter. It's flavorless, but it's like a really stiff gum. I mean, I'm kicking it old school here. (laughs) It's a double boiler. You're holding your pot in a pan of water. Chicle is easy to burn if you heat it too much. And when Edward says it's sticky, he isn't kidding. It's almost impossible to wash chicle off. So Edward buys his pots for gum-making at the thrift store. And then he just throws the pots out. So you might wonder, he's going to all this trouble, why? Edward is the kind of guy who reads ingredients. And the ingredient labels on chewing gum, on pretty much every major brand of chewing gum, include two words that Edward didn't understand. Gum base. I didn't know what it was. Gum base. The words themselves are pretty innocuous. Like, move along, folks. It's only gum base. Nothing at all to see here. Only Edward asked the question. I started looking into what exactly is gum. What he discovered is that gum base is a black box, a gum industry catch-all. Gum base can include dozens of ingredients, many of them synthetic, and in a lot of cases, with far less innocuous-sounding names. Polyvinyl acetate, ester of rosin, all of these different things. Gum manufacturers don't have to publicly disclose what's actually in it. And when Edward tried to find kid-friendly chewing gum, gum he could give his own children that wasn't made with gum base, the pickings were incredibly slim. And so then I began the process of kind of discovery. It's like, what? okay, so what really was in gum back in, you know, a long time ago when they first started? And that's what led me to Chico. The chicle in Edward's double boiler is starting to melt. And as he stirs, his spoon trails these wispy, sticky chicle threads. It um, looks like a, a Rice Krispie square. Yeah, uh, the, It's the same kind of ivory color, and it's, it's little bits. It's not at all what I expected. He scrapes the melted chicle out of the pot onto a mat. I'm just putting a little powdered sugar on it so that I can keep it from sticking. And starts to knead it. You want to get it nice and soft, you're going to knead it like a dough. It's just a really sticky dough. 
Edward's gum contains exactly five ingredients. There's that chicle, organic cane sugar, natural flavoring, vegetable glycerin, and sunflower lecithin, an emulsifier that makes the gum smooth. You can see it's really simple. You know, a peck of this and a dash of that. It's very unscientific in a wonderful way. After kneading those ingredients together, he rolls the gum into a rope, and then he cuts the rope into bite-sized pieces and dusts them with a toss of powdered sugar. Finally, he hands one over. So this is gum. This is real good gum. Okay, I want to try that. Oh, wow. Bubbly. <laughs> Edward's homemade chewing gum is extra soft and sort of gently sweet. He flavored this batch with natural grape flavoring, and it tastes like fresh, ripe grape juice, but in the form of chewing gum. That's really good. <laughs> And all I can think is if this guy, who, by the way, is not a chef or food scientist, who says he isn't even much of a cook, if this guy can make homemade gum in his own kitchen with five simple ingredients in 20 minutes, where did the actual gum industry get so far off track? From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nuttall-Smith. Before gum came in hundreds of different formulations and flavors, before it became this pliable, non-dissolving, non-nutritive, plasticized, synthetic rubber product, gum was a totally natural substance, made in small batches by hand. But even as far back as the age of the Aztecs, chewing gum has also carried certain connotations. As something that, at best, you're not supposed to chew in polite company. And at worst, is a societal scourge. As if that wasn't bad enough, in the last few decades, gum has also become kind of the mystery meat of the candy aisle. Nobody's entirely sure anymore what's in the stuff. So after a pretty good run, a run that stretches back thousands of years, chewing gum is in trouble. Sales are falling. Nobody wants to chew the stuff. It's as if all the industry's flavor has finally run out. In this episode, Choo Choo. It's our look at how gum conquered the planet and why today it's fighting just to survive. I think we're just a very oral kind of uh, species. Chewing gum seems like a simple, trivial thing, but in fact, it's really complex. This is Jennifer Matthews. I'm a professor of anthropology at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Jennifer wrote the book about the history of chewing gum. It's called Chicle, the Chewing Gum of the Americas. Chicle, the Chewing Gum of the Americas, from the ancient Maya to William Wrigley. We've been doing it for thousands of years. There's lots of evidence that we've been doing it as far back as the Iceman, and we see it amongst the ancient Maya and the Aztecs and the Greeks. So it seems to be some kind of inclination for us, the need to chew. Humans have a long history with gum-like substances. The ancient Greeks chewed tree resin mixed with plants, and the Aztecs chewed on the same stuff Edward Bradfield makes his gum from, chicle. People around the world chewed all kinds of things. They were chewing a kind of tar called bitumen. They were also chewing on pine resin. 
They were also chewing paraffin wax, and uh, it was not very satisfying. The wax, of course, would break down, and it didn't hold the flavor very well, but that was what most people were chewing in the late 1800s. Chewing gum's big leap into the modern age, into a form that people today might recognize, came at the end of the 1800s, via a former Mexican president named Antonio López de Santa Ana. As a political and military leader, the guy was kind of a disaster. He was enough of a disaster that by the 1850s, he was living in exile on Staten Island, chasing a get-rich-quick scheme to fund his way back to power. A few years earlier, an inventor named Charles Goodyear had figured out how to vulcanize rubber, how to process the resin from rubber trees so it could be used in durable goods like tires and shoes. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana had a similar scheme with a similar resin. Its name was chicle. He had brought a bunch of chicle with him from Mexico, and he wanted to find the next rubber. So he was looking for a local inventor who could take the stores of chicle that he had and turn it into a gold mine. So El Presidente teamed up with this inventor named Thomas Adams. Thomas Adams and his son spent months and months attempting to vulcanize it, and it simply wasn't the right consistency. Eventually, the partners gave up. They went their own ways. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana returned to Mexico, penniless. And Thomas Adams was left with more chicle than he could possibly use. He was ready to throw the uh, barrels of chicle into the Hudson River, And he took a break and he went down to the local confectionery store and there was a little girl asking for paraffin wax gum. And he immediately said, well, it may not make rubber, but it sure could make some good gum. And so he went back and he and his sons cooked up a bunch of the chicle, rolled it into these little gray balls and took it back to the candy store and said, do you think you could sell this as a kind of chewing gum? And they sold out immediately. And this was without any flavor in it, without any candy coating. It was just, you know, gray, rubbery chicle. Uh, And so from there, he started adding flavoring, started adding the candy coatings. To be totally clear here, Charles Adams discovered chicle-based chewing gum kind of in the same way that Christopher Columbus discovered America. It had already been discovered several centuries before he ever came along. But Adams sure knew how to market the stuff. In the 1880s, Adams launched a licorice-flavored gum called Adams Blackjack. And one of his company's most enduring gum brands launched a few years later in 1914. Its name was Chicklets. Still, Adams was a total lightweight compared to the person who made manufactured gum a global phenomenon. His name was William Wrigley Jr. He really was the major mover and shaker. Wrigley Jr. was a marketing genius. At one point, he sent a free pack of chewing gum to every single person listed in the U.S. phone book. And he figured if they tried it with just one stick of gum, they'd be back for more. He did that, and he also went to the U.S. military with an idea. And said, your soldiers are perfect people to be chewing gum. They're sitting in foxholes. They're nervous. They've got lots of time on their hand. Uh, They may be hungry or thirsty. And chewing gum is going to take care of those things. It's also going to help clean their teeth. And so he convinced the U.S. military to put rations of chewing gum in 
every arm of the military service. Started in World War One, and then it expanded in World War Two. And that was really the height of um, the chewing gum industry was during World War II. That campaign made his chewing gum a symbol of power and patriotism, of America itself. It did all that, and it helped make Wrigley a ridiculously wealthy man. He owned half of Catalina Island off of the California coast. He bought the Chicago Cubs. Wrigley Field, why didn't that come to my mind until you said it? Exactly. If you look at Chicago... He has left his mark all over that city, and that is chewing gum money. The other thing Wrigley accomplished, he enabled humans chewing fixation around the world. Soldiers would take it with them into small towns, and they would give it to children. And to the horror of their parents, they would come home chomping on this American gum. That was really how the habit spread around the world. Within a few years, in a lot of places on Earth, you couldn't just casually reach under a chair or table without risking a fingerful of chewed-up gum, which left a lot of people unimpressed. And in the world of chewing gum, this was not a new phenomenon. Even a lot of ancient Aztecs apparently looked down on the stuff. There was um, one set of books in particular written by a friar who really admired Aztec culture, and he, in fact, talks about chewing gum in Aztec society. Uh, it was actually a marker of prostitution, and there's a, a quote talking about a woman walking along the waterside, clanking on her cheek lay like castanets, and it was clearly an indication that this was a sign that she was a sex worker. Most people, if they were part of polite society, were not supposed to chew gum in public. Those attitudes around gum stuck. Even in William Wrigley Jr.'s America, even in the movies, the most ardent gum chewers were often ditzes and lowlifes. Wait a moment. What have you got in your mouth? Now, of course, I'm right back on gum. I chew it all day except at mealtimes when I stick it behind my ear. Violet. Call it, mother. Now, it don't look nice chewing gum in that suit. I'm chewing my mouth. Well, skip it. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. That low-life association, though, it really kind of depended on your perspective. After all, one person's low-life is another person's icon of rebelliousness and cool. Chewing gum was really my great childhood obsession. It was just a symbol of this other life that was inaccessible to us. This is Anya von Bremsen. I'm a writer on food and culture, and my last book was a memoir about Soviet life called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, a memoir of food and longing. If you're at all on the fence still about chewing gum, as in whether gum has any meaning, any value beyond its sticker price, Anya's story should straighten things out. You have to understand that for people living behind the Iron Curtains, we didn't have access to anything Western, and at the same time we were obsessed with all the Western commodities. My mother's generation, they were obsessed with Western culture, with Hemingway, but our cynical generation of you know, black marketeers, we were completely besotted with like small tokens of Westernness. And chewing gum, because we didn't have it in Russia, they didn't produce it. So it was, you know, implicitly unpatriotic. And you were not supposed to possess anything Western. It had this really bad reputation for something that causes syphilis. (laughs) Uh, And therefore, it was even more desirable. Did you just say that chewing gum causes syphilis? 
That's what they told Soviet schools because, you know, a lot of Soviet children were obsessed with Western chewing gum. And, you know, you could only get it by hanging out in front of a hotel and begging foreigners for it. So it was like this contraband thing. And what the Soviet children did is like you would chew it for, you know, five seconds and then you would give it to someone else. So that was like really unhealthy. And then I remember going to the local polyclinic, which was plastered with horrible images of syphilitics, you know, and with the kind of cauliflower growths on their faces and just kind of checking my own nose every day in the mirror, seeing if I actually develop syphilis through chewing the gum. In spite of the risks, Anya persisted. She became one of those kids who begged for gum outside hotels where foreigners stayed. She quickly became a chewing gum black marketeer. Anya and her friends would pile into the bathrooms at school where she would use a ruler to measure out tiny pieces of gum. She sold them by the millimeter. Being a black marketeer in Soviet society in the early 70s, it was something kind of prestigious. And the gum that Anya prized most was pure Americana, Wrigley's Juicy Fruit. Something about Juicy Fruit, Wrigley's, it was really yellow, I think that kind of poignant, you know, un-Soviet yellow color really impressed me. And it had this, like, synthetic kind of floral aroma that, you know, I still have, like, this Proustian moments, you know. I don't chew gum much these days. But sometimes, you know, every once in a while, I buy myself, you know, Wrigley's Juicy Fruit, and I just put one in my mouth, and it brings back that kind of illicit childhood thrill. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. You know how Anya says Wrigley's had a synthetic floral aroma? By the time she developed her gum obsession, there was a lot more synthetic about it than just the smell. As the industry's fortunes surged during the Second World War, gum manufacturers couldn't source enough chicle to keep up with demand. So they tried other ingredients. Jennifer Matthews. They looked to other kinds of natural latexes, and they simply didn't work the same as chicle. They didn't have the same kind of consistency. And so that's when they started turning to the synthetics. What Jennifer means there is the gum companies started turning to gum base. Well, that piece of gum that you wind up with in your mouth, which we in the industry call a cud. And we call it a cud because you see a cow out in the pasture chewing on their cud. So we called it cud because it's something that's in your mouth and you're chewing. <laughs> And that primarily is a plasticized rubber. That's what it is. This is Doug Fritz. I've been working in the chewing gum industry since about 1967. Doug's a chemist. After university, he went to work for the Nabisco company, making Oreo cookies and confectionery. And then this chewing gum and collectible card company came calling. Its name was Topps. Their primary business was chewing gum. They made bazooka, bubble gum. That was you? You were responsible for that? You're taking me back to my childhood. I can still I can still taste bazooka gum. Yeah, I was making that stuff. I was formulating and giving the formulas to the factories, and then they manufactured it. And if something didn't work, they always called me, and I'd go out in the factory and solve the problem. Doug worked for Tops until, in 1979, he started a gum-based company called Cafosa. 
Kafosa sold its gum base to manufacturers around the world. And within a few years, they were the planet's largest manufacturer of gum base. I guess all this is a way of saying this guy knows what he's talking about. Do you think most people know what's in chewing gum? No. <laughs> you know, there's the, there's the old thing that's made out of galoshes, and then there's the horse hooves. I mean, there's been all kinds of rumors about what's in there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's none of those. Chewing gum, modern chewing gum, is composed of a few distinct parts. And to understand them, you need to know a little bit about human sense of smell and taste. If we look at the flavoring in a piece of gum, you have a problem with chewing gum that everybody always says, and that is it loses its flavor. Right. And everybody says that, you know, my chewing gum loses its flavor when I start to chew it. That flavor perception problem pretty much drives people in the chewing gum industry mad. Because all that flavor you can't taste in chewed up chewing gum, a lot of the time it hasn't actually gone anywhere at all. So the, the problem we have with a piece of chewing gum is when you put it in your mouth and start chewing it, within five to seven minutes, your olfactory system negates the flavor. Huh. Whether there's flavor there or not, you can't detect it. It turns out our sense of smell is designed to cancel out smells after they've been around for a few minutes. That's why you can hang out at home when you forget to put out the trash and never notice it. But if you go out for a while and come back in, the stench will hit you like a hot wet garbage train. Take a piece of gum and chew it until you say, well, there's no more flavor in it. Take it out of your mouth, put it down, let it sit there for a couple hours, come back, pick it up and start chewing it. You'll taste it. Still flavor in there. Try it. He's right. But other human senses don't tune out quite as quickly as smell does. Our perception of sweet, for instance, as well as tactile sensations like the coolness of mint. As long as the sweet taste is in your mouth, you're going to taste sweet. Hmm. And the same thing with the tactile flavors, sensors, which is the, the mucous membranes in the mouth, these cooling effects, those continue to last. So the industry goes heavy on sweet. Sucralose and aspartame. And the industry goes heavy on those tactile ingredients, coolants mostly. So the cooling flavors give you this, as you say, a minty or a cooling effect inside the mouth. And those coolants, modern coolants, often come from a slightly surprising place. So it was really a shaving cream company that invented the cooling flavors. Back in the, in the 70s, there was a company in the UK called Wilkinson Sword Blades, and they went through a whole bunch of studies, and they found a whole series of, of ingredients, and they're on the market. You can go buy them. And they still go by the Wilkinson names. They call them WS3, WLS23, uh, and the WS comes from Wilkinson Sword. So my chewing gum cools down my mouth and tastes really minty with that tingly minty flavor and effect because of the shaving industry. In, a, in effect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gum also pretty typically contains a humectant of some sort, a moisturizer, glycerin usually. That is to keep it soft so it doesn't dry out. But the main part of gum, beyond all that stuff, is the gum itself. The gum base. Those two totally unremarkable words. What's in gum base? What are the key components of, of that base? <clears throat> Number one key component is the rubber. 
those synthetic rubbers go by names like butadiene, styrene, and polyvinyl acetate, the industry in North America is allowed to use any of five main synthetic rubbers. The other major component in chewing gum is the plasticizer that we use. Common plasticizers include lanolin, the fat taken from sheep's wool, and partially hydrogenated wood rosin. If we take a lot of the plastics that you see, even things like silly putty and stuff like that, I mean, you could stick that in your mouth and chew on it if you wanted to. It's not very healthy, but you could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take your word for it. I don't think I'll be trying yeah. that. All told, synthetic gum base, just the flubbery, flavorless compound at the heart of chewing gum, can be made from more than 40 allowed ingredients. Most of them are, by all indications, pretty benign. But a few of them are considered harmful in higher doses. The preservative BHA, for instance, is a known human carcinogen. Manufacturers can also add any substance that health regulators agree isn't proven to be harmful. What those extra ingredients are and how many are in your chewing gum is anybody's guess. It's super proprietary. Nobody lists them. Which feels kind of weird in an era of ingredients list obsessiveness and so-called clean label food companies. It's hard not to think the gum industry's we-won't-tell-you-what's-in-it-but-trust-us approach might have at least a little something to do with those declining sales. Volume sales are declining in all markets except Spain, where they're flat, the U.S., where they're flat, the U.K., where they're flat. This is Marcia Mogolonsky. I'm the director of Insight from Mintel Food and Drink. I work on a group of the company that focuses on food and drink, hence my interest in chewing gum. When you ask Marcia about the state of the chewing gum industry, she doesn't have a whole lot of positive news, especially about sales. Gum sales are down. Volume sales are, are down 7% in China. They're down 7% in Japan, and they're down 7% in Russia. And those are some of the biggest markets. For the Canadians, they're down 3%. Are there any bright spots? Is there anywhere where gum sales are rising? Hmm. No. What's happened to this industry? <sighs> this industry has done not as well as we would have liked, at least the gum manufacturers would have liked. But the problem with gum is that you don't know what to do with it when you're finished. And the when you're finished part is pretty quickly after you start chewing it. That single problem... What's sometimes called the pollution problem keeps gum company executives up at night. Doug Fritz. If you're sitting at a desk or, or driving in your car or something like that and you've got this piece of gum in your mouth, well, what do you do with it? You know, spit it out the window? I don't know. <laughs> That's such a basic question. It's not new. Why has the industry not been able to figure this out? Uh, because we can't make it taste good when we make it so it doesn't stick to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> The chewing gum industry has a fear that they're going to get taken to task like the tobacco industry. That is, they're going to get the bill for cleaning the streets. That's a real fear uh, in the industry? It is a real fear in the industry. And some countries like Singapore banned it totally because they didn't want the pollution. That strikes you know, terror so. into the heart of the industry. It does. <laughs> it does. Beyond the pollution problem, gum's also suffering these days from a lack of usefulness. There are other things that do what gum does, only better. It promises to freshen your breath. It promises to whiten your teeth. It promises to improve your dental health. Hmm. But think about it for a second. If you really want to whiten your teeth, are you going to chew gum for 10 minutes and spit it out? Or are you going to go get those white strips and put them on your teeth for a half an hour and get white teeth? 
gum with added vitamins and minerals, that's another of the industry's latest rays of hope. Well, doesn't everything have extra vitamins and minerals lately? Gum companies are even betting on caffeine-laced varieties. I'm going to bet the people who run Starbucks aren't exactly scared. As a breath freshener, gum is still very effective, but there's a lot more mints and mint chewy mints like Mentos or strong mints that dissolve in your mouth like Altoids, which are also available and don't have that gum issue of what you do with it. So there are other oral care products out there that compete, and they're doing better. Even medicated gums, a rare spot of hope for the industry, haven't lived up to their promise. Sales of nicotine gum, a category Doug Fritz referred to as the gum industry's big kahuna, have slipped in the last few years. And other hopeful projects, for example, to make chewing gum a delivery vehicle for insulin, have yet to pay off. Turns out it's really hard to control the dosage of a medicine in a quasi-foodstuff that people are used to spitting out. But other, broader problems are even more worrying. Kids don't chew that much gum. Their parents usually dissuade them from doing that. Hmm. Teens used to chew a lot of gum, but teens kind of turned into 20s, and 20s kind of figure that it's not cool to chew gum anymore. We asked a question at Mintel of American gum chewers, and we said, do you chew gum when you're alone? Only when you're alone. And the response was 26% of gum chewers said, it's my secret vice. I only chew it when I'm alone. <laughs> but 41% of millennials said that. So what? 41% of the young people are no longer thinking it's cool to chew gum in public. In other words, well, it's gum's longstanding lowlife problem messing things up. It's almost as if the entire industry has stepped on a big, juicy wad of gum. It's stuck. And when you ask gum experts about innovation in the gum industry, about what steps the big players are taking to turn things around to save themselves, well, you don't get a lot that sounds particularly innovative. One brand that keeps coming up, named Project 7, calls itself a gourmet gum company. They make flavors like Margarita Vita and Grapefruit Melon. We got a bunch of it in, and Project 7's flavors do taste a lot like what the labels say. But other than that, it's just regular, synthetic, sugar-free gum. One other brand keeps coming up. What's that? Gum, it's gum, it's new juicy drop gum, sour and sweet. And you boost the flavor. Juicy Drop from Bazooka, the company where Doug Fritz used to work. The whole trick with Juicy Drop is that you can extend the gum's flavor by squirting your chewed up wad with this flavor syrup that comes in the package. And honestly, when I first heard about it, isn't that a lot like Freshen Up? Remember Freshen Up with the tasty flavor syrup inside it? Freshen up. We got some of that juicy drop in, and I'm really, really sorry to say, I tried it. The syrup, that juicy drop flavor syrup that the gum industry's all excited about, that's supposed to be the future, tastes to me like off-brand juice crystals dissolved in hairspray. It's no wonder people are making their own gum at home. 
this is where I warehouse all the cases and cartons of of chewing gum, such as the lot of a <laughs> of a startup. Remember Edward Bradfield in Austin? His home cooking project turned into more than that. It turned into a company called Real Good Gum. There are cases of gum, like stacked to the ceiling. We're in Edward's living room and corporate headquarters and sensory evaluation lab. And it's his company's warehouse, too. Okay, they're they're like two feet away from the ceiling. They're really, really high. Like, I don't want them to fall on anyone. But if you ever wanted to play a game of chewing gum Jenga, that would be true. And it also, it scents the house so nicely. It does smell really strongly of mint and tutti-frutti flavor in here. Edward is part of a new wave of natural gum makers, of companies that believe the greatest innovation in chewing gum is spurning innovation. They're making their gum the old-fashioned way, with chiclet, betting on the future with inspiration from the past. Those new companies include Glee Gum from Rhode Island and a brand called Chixa that's made right at the source in Chetumal, Mexico, by the laborers who harvest the chiclet. Another company out of New York called Simply Gum not only makes natural gum, but has also at least sort of solved the industry's pollution problem. Every pack of Simply Gum contains these little moisture-proof papers for spitting once you're done. As for Edward, he was most concerned with what the gum's like in your mouth, and at least sort of outside it. It was super important to me that you could blow bubbles. You know, you do certain things with your kids that are, you're right, as a parent, and something that they may not remember, but you'll remember always. I mean, I remember when my daughter Margaret was a baby. I will never forget the first time she ever smelled a rose. It still gives me kind of goosebumps to think about the way she looked when she first smelled that, the way she was, the way Marybelle was, and the way my son Cash was when I first let go of the bike, you know, when I taught him to hop on one foot, you know, and I think blowing bubbles is that exact same thing. Edward launched Real Good Gum in three flavors. They're called Hello Bubbleful, What's Up Cinnamon, and Nice to Mint You. The company's slogan, a reference to the trees that supply its chiclet, is no junk, just trunk. It's early days still, but Edward sounds pretty positive, at least about his little piece of the industry. And I have to say, he might be right. Though I stopped buying checkout aisle gum years ago, I'd chew what he's making. I'd chew most of the natural chewing gums any day of the week. And I'd do one other thing with it. Because Edward's biggest wish for his gum company, he nailed it. His gum, his blast from the past, makes really good bubbles. This is The Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Edward Bradfield of Real Good Gum, historian Jennifer Matthews, food writer Anya von Bremsen, gum-based guru Doug Fritz, and industry analyst Marcia Mokolonski. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Michelle Macklem, Veronica Simmons, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Nuttall-Smith. We had help this week from Ali Ferguson. Additional music is by Paolo Pietropaolo. Our executive producer is Arif Nurani. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, write us a review. For more info on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. You can connect with us on Twitter and share photos of your best 
Gumbubbles. On Instagram, at FridgeLightCBC, I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.